Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, we had a little bit of a break. I just um, I just got back from a, a very exciting, just wonderful, wonderful trip uh, to South Africa. And i, I just tell you uh, just a, a couple of things about it. Um, so, so first of all, the, the South African community uh, down in Johannesburg, I was, is, is fantastic. And um, just, uh, just if, you, if you have a chance to go, definitely, definitely visit. The people are amazing. Um, so, so anyway, uh, it, was, it was an adventure getting there. Coming from Los Angeles, it's a, it's, a, it's a really long trip. I can tell you just on the way back, leaving my, uh, from, the, from our host's house, Leaving, counting from there to, by the time I got into our house here in Los Angeles, it was 27 hours. So it's, it's, it's a long trip. It's a long trip. So if you, if you go, uh, especially if you're coming from California, I recommend that you, you, you do a stopover or whatever it is. And if you can spend a, a night or two in, in, in some place in Israel and wherever, like on the way, that, that's, that would be ideal. But, but anyway, uh, on the flight over, yeah, it just... Uh, if, if, you, if you remember, those of you who have been sort of staying with these talks, I went five years ago, and I uh, just disastrously missed my, my, my connection in London. And it was just something that's uh, kind of been, just been plaguing me ever since. And the running joke in our house was that if you, if you ever go again, you're not missing your connection, right? That's like just an... Just like lots of variations on, on, on that joke, basically. Not, it wasn't a joke, but, you know, for, it, was, it was... Anyway, so this time we were routed through Atlanta. There was a stopover in Atlanta, and this time I went with my wife. And, and someone um, years ago, this imagery always stayed with me, they, they, said, they, can, they said, you know, when, when you're with your wife, they, they said, you know what, I, I sort of see you're... you're, you're it's like a... You're like this helium balloon, and she's holding the string, you know? So that's, that's kind of like the two of you. So I'm like, okay, great. So, so the person holding the balloon is coming with me this time. It's not going to be a problem, right? So, and, and, and my wife said, you know, many times over these years, I'm coming with you next time, and it's, it's not going to be an issue. Okay, great. So we get to Atlanta. <laughs> Okay, the Ramak, the Ramak, we have it from Rabbi Freeman there. So, so, so we, 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 we stop over and it's like a couple hour stop over in Atlanta and we, we, uh, we went to one of those uh, airport lounges and we're sitting there and everything like that, it's relaxed. We're, and then at a certain point, um, my wife said, okay, well, you know, we should, we should head to the gate. So we start to walk to the gate and we hear over the loudspeaker, David and Judy Sachs, and it's like, we're like, what? Like, that, wh- why are they announcing our names, and why are they the only names they're announcing? And we get to the gate, and they said to us, we were about to take your luggage off the flight, and we were the last people to board, and we almost, I said, I missed my life, la- I missed my flight last time, and the person who was at the gate, who was not happy, said, well, you were about to miss it again. <laughs> And it was just like, how did that almost happen? We, it just it was like, it was horrible. Anyway, we get on the flight. 
thank God we made the flight this time. We get on the flight, and um, and uh, we uh, it's you know it's going smoothly. It's a long, long flight, but it's going smoothly, and we're getting close to landing in Johannesburg, and and the uh, pilot announces, well, you know, there's some turbulence, whatever it is, we can't we can't land this time. Um, so, so we're going to circle around. It's going to be another 10 minutes. It's like, okay. So then, then the next time after 10 minutes, he says, you know what? We can't land again. We're going to circle around. It's going to be another 10 minutes. And then the third time, all of a sudden, the plane is like really shaking. And it's not a, a danger of um, crashing or anything like that. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with the airplane. But the turbulence is rocking the plane in, in, in such a way that my stomach can't take it. And um, I just, um, and, you know, I'm making that face. And my wife, like, like, a, like, a, like a magician, all of a sudden there's like this big Ziploc bag that's handed to me, like, which, thank God, you know. And there I'm just going at it, you know. So I just, it was, you know, I, I just couldn't take it. But why am I telling you this? Not to, not, not to gross you out. But, 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 and everything was clean. It was all in this like large Ziploc. But, but, but while I was sick, this extremely well-dressed, elegant, black South African woman, not connected with the airline, just a passenger on the plane, gets up and comes up to me and starts rubbing my back. And just, you know, in this like, you know, like, you know, like, like nurse-like way, like this medicinal way, you know, just rubbing, 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 rubbing. And I was so confused. You know? I, was, I mean, it was just, I, I, I felt the love and the, and, you know, the, the, the concern and everything like that. But, but and, and I remember thinking like, sort of like in, in the middle of it, which was like, um, I was asking myself, is this, is this helping <laughs> <laughs> I thought to myself, well, you know, it's sort of taking my attention away from what I'm doing. So in, in a weird way, the, the, the distraction was, was, was helpful. Anyway, she was saying some things to me, but I, I didn't know what she was saying exactly. And then she, and it was amazing. She, she handed me a napkin, and then she went to her seat, and then she came back after it was clear that I was done. She took the bag away from me, and then she came back, with hand sanitizer, and she, like, she put it like this big kind of bunch on her hand, rubbed her hands together, and then took my hands, and then rubbed my hands to, to just, you know, just in case there had been any germs or whatever it is, like, all done. And it, it was extraordinary. But then, here comes the next part, all right? There was a uh, family in front of me that I think got on in Atlanta, the plane started in Atlanta, a black family, and it was a, uh, the, the, uh, the father was in front of me, and then there was their daughter in the middle, and then the wife was on the window seat. And I had noticed at one point, he was working on his laptop, doing some business, and he had a bumper sticker on his, on the, you know, near the keys of his laptop that said, I love being black. And I love that, and I, I really I wanted to take a picture of it, but I didn't. But that was I was like, okay, that's you know that's really cool, you know that's interesting. So anyway, after this woman, you know, on the on the flight had done this like very amazing thing, and then she walked away. He turns around, 
and says to me, that was a mitzvah. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was... And, and I just, I don't know. Like I, I had the presence of mind to say, I said to him, I said, I said that was a big mitzvah. And then I told him this Torah from Rebbe Leibola Eger. So I said to him, I said, I said in his name, I said, um, I heard this from Reb Shlomo. I said, do you know, I said, do you know the, the, the do you know this, the sign or the test of what, the test of whether you're getting closer to God is, are you getting closer to people? That's what I said to him. And I said, there you see, there, there it is. You see how she's getting closer to people. That's getting closer to God. And he was like, yeah. You know, he's into that. So that was my arrival in Johannesburg. Then from the airport to the house that we were staying at, which was not that long a drive, we said three bruchas. Okay, what are the three bruchas? There was thunder, there was lightning, and there was a rainbow. <laughs> All in the short drive from the airport to, to, to the house we were staying. And the lightning, the lightning was not like simple lightning. Like, you know, like you have like a little skinny, like a little skinny bolt, you know, or maybe you don't even have a bolt. You just have like a flash of lightning. This was a big, thick, jagged, like, streak across the sky, like, you know, out of a comic book or something like that. I mean, that's lightning, you know? So, so anyway, um, that's, that's, that, was, that was one story. Then, then we got, uh, then we were able to go, we had um, the, the, the opportunity, the privilege to go on a, on a, on a safari, so for two nights, so... Safari is a bit of a grand word. It's, it's really, you're in an open Jeep and you're kind of driving through the bush looking at wild animals. So I guess that's a safari. But, you know, you're not like within a pith helmet, like, you know, in like the jungle with a gun or something like that, you know. But, um, but anyway, it's, if, you, if, you, if you have the opportunity to, to, uh, to go, if you, I, I really recommend it. We, we just, it's, 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 it's just, it's great. It's just great. Um, you just see all sorts of stuff, like, like from my bedroom window. From my bedroom window, I was just kind of working on, um, just working on some speeches. I, I gave, I gave thirteen talks while I was down there. So, so, um, so anyway, I was working on a talk, and just outside my bedroom window, I saw a herd of elephants. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, like you can't, you can't believe it. It's like there's a herd of elephants outside my bedroom window. It's like it's wild, you know. So. Um, and we saw all sorts of things. Uh, so a, a leopard in a tree. That was super cool. And we were like right under the tree for like 10 minutes. And I remember like the first eight minutes, I'm snapping pictures and it's sort of like, and I'm just thinking, it's a leopard in a tree. Like, hey, this is great. Like, you know, when, when do you see this? And then the last two minutes, I was like, that leopard can jump on top of me and kill me at any moment. It's like, what are we doing here? Let's get, what the, you know, so it's like eight minutes of sort of like chill and then two minutes of total terror. Like, it was like a very odd. You're so used to seeing those things. Yeah. No big deal. Well, yeah, unless they kill you. 
right? It's like all, and then we heard stories about people who like die on these things. And I was just hearing like, I, I was um, talking with someone yesterday in, in, you know, on Shabbos, and it turns out, you know, there are tons of places to stay uh, out there. There, First of all, there are all sorts of different places you can go to see these things, and there's private reserves, and there's public things, and parks, and all all sorts of places. So someone asked me, so where did you stay? And I, I couldn't, like, couldn't remember exactly the place. And then they said, Sabi Sands? And I was like, yeah. And they, and they said, that's where we stay. And then I said, where did you stay there? And they said, oh, the Elephant Plains. That's, I said, that's where we stayed. Yeah. So it was like, it was so odd. Because there are a lot of places. So they told me this story. Well, let me set it up first. So, so one of the talks that I gave uh, down in South Africa was about shul. Just basically, why go to shul? You know, which is a big question. And... Uh, Anyway, maybe they'll put that online. Maybe you can find that. Um, uh, but, but kind of, I talked about the happy meaning and things like that. But anyway, there were, there were many, many points that were made. But, 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 but kind, of the, the, kind of the main idea, I would say, um, is that, is that there, there's this, we have like, we're all one soul. We share one soul. There's this collective soul. And you can call it Klal Yisrael, you can call it Israel, whatever you want to call it exactly. But we have a collective soul. And you can't really know who you are. You can't realize yourself unless you're part of this collective soul. Do you understand? In other words, how do you define you? What is you? So if you think you is just like, okay, I start on the left side of my body, and then I go to the right side of my body, and then I go to the top of my head, down to the bottom of my feet, that's me. That's as good a definition as any, except it's completely false. It's, it's wrong. It's just outright wrong. You, you are, that's one manifestation of you, but the, the, the realer, greater more trenchant you is this this collective soul that you're that you're a piece of and you'll never know the fullness of you unless you're part of a community you you just will never know who you are basically you'll never realize yourself uh, with everything that that means um so so that's with that in mind with that idea in mind I'll just tell you a couple of stories that, that on the, from the safaris still that sort of illustrate this. Um, so they did a walking tour through the bush. And uh, by the way, what, what does the, the area look like? You might, you might be interested to know. It's not like a jungle, meaning to say like, it's not like there's a tree and then a few feet later there's another tree and then a few inches later another tree and trees, 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 trees. That, it's not that. It's not, that's not what it looks like. It's, um, it kind of looks more like this, this grand, huge, unkept, unkempt park, right? It's like, there's like lots of grass, and then there's a big bush, and then another big bush. In fact, they call it the bush, right? They call it going out in the bush. And then there will be some trees, but it's like a lot of open land, okay? And then some hills in the distance and things like that. But it goes on for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, okay? And then the animals live out there, you know? 
Um, so part of the kind of the program, you know, where we were staying, they, they offer a walk through the bush. Now, normally speaking, you're riding in this open jeep, okay? And, uh, and we didn't go on the walk, but the, but the tour guide, I heard from, back from the tour guide, that he said, when you walk through the bush, and he's going to give a tour, he says, you have to walk in a straight line. In other words, everyone's got to be in a line. You, 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 you stand behind the person in front of you, and then the person behind you is standing behind you, and you walk in a line. Why? And again, remember this idea of the collective soul, right? This is a, to give an illustration of it in a sort of in a cool way, I think. He said that the reason why we do it like that is because when the animal sees this line of people, it perceives it as one large animal. Isn't that interesting? So there, I think, is a very good illustration of this spiritual principle. And he said, whatever you do, don't detach yourself from the line. Because he said that there was someone um, who, who, who just stopped to take pictures. I mean, they must have seen something amazing. And a rhino charged them. And I don't remember this part, but my wife said, and killed the person. Okay? So, so, so it's, really, it's really life and death, basically. And, and again, just, just when, when you drive around and you see like animals in their, in their natural habitat, you see herds of animals. You see groups of animals. And sometimes it's just a few, but you see groups of them. And, and, and there was one period where we were driving for something like, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, because you don't always see animals, because it's a really very large expanse, right? And we were driving, and we didn't see any animals. So, but, you know, it's still cool. There's a breeze, and it's, you know, there had been a lot of rain, the most rain in years, so it was very green. It was pretty. So, you know, it's just kind of cool just to drive around, you know? Anyway, but not seeing animals for quite a while, and then I saw something that made me really sad. I saw one animal kind of like alone by this like bush. And I just thought, wow, he's all alone. Like he got separated from the group. And, and I thought, I wondered like, is he gonna find the group? Like will he fi- even find the group? And what, what kind and of I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but, but it made me, it made me sad, and then it made me think about um, people today, and, and, and as a sign of how deep in exile today's society is, because, I think that most people think that the most natural state, is for them to be alone. Like, people are just very isolated today. You know, they're sitting in their house, they're in front of a, a screen of some sort, computer, their, their phone, you know, the TV, whatever it is. And they feel as though that's the most natural state of being. And then, if you know, for extra credit, a bonus, maybe I'll show up to some kind of community sort of gathering or a minion or, or some, some, some event like that. But that's extra, and that's almost... 
so hard and kind of not what I'm used to. It's almost unnatural for me to do that. But occasionally I'll do that, whatever it is. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. And, and, and again, as a sign of how deep I think the sort of like society is in exile at this point is that people are alone and they think that is the most natural state. In other words, they, see, my, my dad was a psychologist and, and, and one of these sort of like classic foundational kind of ideas in, in any psychology is there can be no change without insight. You must have insight before there can be change. And so what I'm trying to say is that in, in terms of the levels of the depth of the exile that people are in right now, they don't even know that it's abnormal. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? They think that being alone is kind of what life is. And they don't understand what it is to be part of the community. That that, that actually is the most natural state of your humanity. Do you understand? So, so it's very healing it's very healing. In fact, I, while I was looking up studies for, you know, just reasons to go to shul and things like that, things I can present, I saw a study that was um, the, one of the mental health institutes in England said that, that if you are part of a community, here are three things that it helps you with. Okay, you ready? Hope, forgiveness, and sense of purpose. Hope, forgiveness, and sense of purpose. That's like saying, oh, well, um, I mean, I don't know how much I can offer you. I guess I could give you oxygen, food, and shelter. Would that be helpful? You know, it's like, yeah, that actually would be really, really helpful. I could use some oxygen, food, and shelter, you know? Hope, forgiveness, and sense of mission, sense of purpose. You know, I was driving with my son um, the other day. And, you know, it's funny, I gave another talk. They asked me to give a talk on parenting. I've never give a, given a talk on parenting in my life. And so that, that was sort of a challenge. But, but, you know, I gave this talk. And one of the things that I kind of kind of discussed is I saw this article in Tablet Magazine um, that I, it was fascinating to me. It, it was talking about... Um, uh, Children of uh, Haredi Bali Tshuva in Israel. Okay, so so Haredi is translated as in English as ultra orthodox. I I don't know unless like like unless you're talking about I don't like the word ultra in that context. Unless you're ta- like ultra is cool in superhero comic book terms. Like like I'm Ultraman. You know what I mean? But. Like, ultra-Orthodox. Like, I don't even like the word Orthodox. I think Orthodox is a horrible word. You know, someone told me, like, like they prefer uh, to describe... Uh, I like Torah Judaism. Torah Judaism is nice. I like, I like classic Judaism. Kind of like classic Coke, you know? Like, like classic Jew. I think that's cool. It's kind of got the, in, the, the, the... Yeah, the... It's got the, the word class in there, like, you know, like high class, you know, little subtle kind of, you know, subliminal kind of thing there. That's cool. Orthodox, to me, is like, says narrow-minded, you know, parochial, you know? Like, it's sort of like, which is, it's, it's you know, anyone who's actually studied Torah for real knows how totally mind-expanding and trippy it is. It's completely out of the box. It's completely out of the box thinking, you know? There happened to be you know, a set of 
normative behaviors, but but you have to understand that but God is picking these things out of zillions of other choices. In other words, they're divinely they're divinely divinely infused behaviors. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not. It's anyway. It's it's a. You got to just learn for a while and, and find someone you like learning to with to, to to get it. But but once you do, you realize that orthodox is a horrible word and never appears in the Torah. By the way, these are these are sociological terms that were tacked on to Judaism. You know, within the last couple of hundred years. I mean, there's nothing Jewish or authentic about that term. Anyway, so so we're talking about. Um, quote-unquote, ultra-Orthodox, right? Haredi Jews, the children of Haredi Balei Tshuva. In other words, people who have come to, um, you know, Torah observance later in life and have joined these, like, very hardcore religious communities in Jerusalem, say. Like, how do their children experience it? See, so as a Balei myself, you know, raising children who are, you know, you know the, the term is FFB, from from birth, observant from birth, like that's like a whole thing, you know what I mean? And I can tell you as a um, as a as a parent in my naivete, because no one told me, because no one told me, I assumed that they would sort of like their mind would be blown from the outset, you know what I mean? Like it took me till whatever age for my mind to get blown. You get the privilege of having your mind blown from day one. Like wow, this is so great for you. But, but the thing is, is that if you grow up in the tradition, you grow up thinking that this is completely normal, right? Like, I, I, I gave a, a talk to a group um, of kids like this, and I said, look, if, you, if you're raised in the king's palace, and you're eating every day on golden plates and drinking out of crystal goblets, you think, well, what else are you supposed to eat on? <laughs> of course you eat on golden plates and drink out of crystal goblets. Like, why would it be anything different? Because it's all you know. You understand? So what this article and tablet, what I'm getting to is, what they noticed was that the, the parents have this moment of enlightenment and that's what brings them to this path. But that the children don't grow up with this moment of enlightenment. So, so that, that's huge. That's huge. This is like a very big piece of information if you're raising kids like this. So, so you have to bring kids to this place of enlightenment. Right? Because they, that's, and it's, and it's, it, and it's a very personal experience. You know, you can't tell them, okay, and then, okay, so let's review what we went over today. We went over um, how the Jews were saved in the Purim story. You were personally enlightened. <laughs> you all had epiphanies, and then we will be tested on this tomorrow. <laughs> like, like, what? No, it's, it's a very personal thing. You know, that's why, by the way, going out in nature is super important. You know what I mean? Like, people think that, like, like because... Nature, going out into nature can bring a person to enlightenment because it is mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing to see all of those stars in the sky. That will blow anyone's mind, no matter who you are, you know? Um, and then other things like that. So, so trips out into nature is something that if you want just one practical sort of like recommendation how to do it with your kids, that would be the one thing I would, I think, recommend. So, so anyway... Getting back to this idea that um, 
you know, you, you have to, uh, you have to be, you have to be part of this community. Like that's, that's like very, very important, you know? Um, so, so this person was telling me who, who was staying at the same hotel that we were at, right? They said that they were doing a walking tour and they walked for six hours in a 105 degree temperature. And he said they didn't see any animals. <laughs> Can you imagine? And then during another walk, all of a sudden they hear a growl. And they, it, was a, a, it was a lion. And, um, and, and then they see there's water buffalo. Now, you don't hear much about water buffalo, but water buffalo are the most dangerous creatures. Okay? And, and the, our guy told us the reason is because they're completely unpredictable. And um, so, so, like, for instance, we would be, I, I was in this open Jeep right next to an elephant. And the elephant was, you know, eating grass. By the way, you, you want to hear a, a mind blower? He said, if you, if you actually watch the elephant's trunk move, and, you know, like, seeing it, like, uproot grass, and you see how dexterous um, the, the, the elephant is with its trunk, you ready for this? There are 150,000 muscles in an elephant trunk. Isn't that amazing? 150,000 muscles in an elephant trunk, more than in the entire human body. And I'll tell you something, having watched, like watching an elephant trunk up close, you believe it. As, as extraordinary as a number, like it can't be that many. No, because it can move it in absolutely any direction. It's, it's really wild to watch, you know? So anyway, I'm right next to an elephant, and my wife was literally pulling me back, like, this is not safe, you know? Um, but my point is, is that the guide is like, they're experts in reading animal behavior. So they know whether an animal is cool or not, right? But he said that by water buffalo, you can't read them. And that water buffalo can look cool one moment, and the next moment charge to kill. So that's, you don't mess with them. So, so while they were doing this walking tour, they found themselves almost between some lions and some water buffalo. <laughs> and, you know, that's, you don't want to be at that intersection. You know what I mean? It's like, so, so he said, okay, let's take the long way around. So they, apparently they had to walk like a very, very far distance in order to avoid the situation. Okay, great. As they're getting back toward the jeep, they hear a growling, and they turn around and they see that the lions have been tracking them the whole time. So this is a first-person story. I heard it from the guy who ha it happened to. So all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait a second, this is not great because there are lions there following us. So, so they, they, uh, he asked the guide, what do we do? And, and the guide said, like, he said, what do we do if they start running toward us? And the guide said, you stand your ground. You don't move. Because if you move, if you run, then they consider you prey. And then once you're prey, for the lion, that's easy peasy. You know what I mean? That's just like, you know, that's done. That's, you know, d you're done done. So you have to stand your ground. 
And then he said that there was some, this happened to one of his groups. Lions started charging, and one of the guys had a heart attack on the spot and died. So people die on these things. And, and believe it or not, you know, you know <laughs> so you have to sign this extensive waiver. And I didn't even read it. I just told my wife, just sign my name. I can't, I can't deal with that. You know what I mean? So, so, but this waiver is like, you know, it's your, <laughs> basically they say it in every variation, this idea. Your fault, not ours. <laughs> you know, you're going, it's your fault. You know, that's it. Done. So, so he said that one of the moves that a lion does is that it will kind of do this like fake out. Like it will start towards you like it's charging, but it doesn't charge just to see if you'll run. And then it's got you, you know, without having, I guess, whatever exerted the effort or whatever the, you know, logic is. But so they'll actually just do this like like in like this pump fake towards you to see if you'll flinch and start to run. And then interesting. But again, it getting back to the sort of the broader spiritual idea here, the importance of being in that line. You know, because that's that's the we're we're really us when we're together. We're us when we're together. That's sort of the headline here. Um okay. So, so that's, uh, that's some stories about South Africa. <laughs> and now I want to, um, I want to give you, uh, I want to talk about something, something else right now. Um, I sort of had some clarity on, 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 a, on a, for me, it, this is a big thought. So I want to talk about the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the desert, and I want to talk about it in a very, very broad macro sense. Like, I haven't really heard it discussed this way before. So, so... Yeah, but it's, it's grass. I imagine that was more sand and, and stuff like that. Okay, so, so let's, let's, begin, let's begin this way. You see... Basically, th- there's an idea that I've been sharing for for years and years now. It's like kind of one of the ma- one of the main ideas I kind of want to get out in my lifetime to to as many people as possible, and and we're going to see how this uh, ties together in terms of understanding this idea. And by the way, when we say the Mishkan, and it's translated as the Tabernacle, which is one of the weirder words and. English, I think. I don't even know what that is. That sounds like, like, a, like a cabinet where I put like teacups or whatever. You know what I mean? I don't know what a tabernacle is, but I guess that's the... But basically, you should be thinking of, you should be thinking of the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, because it's all the same idea. And what is that? That's the connection between heaven and earth. Okay, so we're not talking about a building here. We're talking about basically a unifying ideal for all of creation. So that's just... That's just number one, just so you understand what we're talking about. Okay, good. So what's this big idea that I've been trying to promote? It's the idea that, you know, everyone has this question, which is that if there's a God and he's good, then why is the world so messed up? This is everybody's question. You know, whether you can express it or not, whether you can articulate it or not. 
And the answer is, is because the world's not finished yet. That's, that's the answer. The world is still in the process of being created, and God created us to be partners with him to finish off the world. Okay? That, that, that's, that's, that, that, that's what it is. That's what it is. So, so, like an architect, an architect envisions the finished house first and then sets about to build it. So God, before he created the world, envisioned a perfect world, a world where there's no hatred or war or obstacles to serving him. And, and that's what we're driving toward. But that, that was the first thought in God's mind. Um, so... What we so, think that the finished uh, product is in this world, not this is just a corridor to get to that I'm just asking. Uh, say it again? What makes you think that uh, this world is uh, the final product uh, and not just a way to the final product, which is another world? Right. So, so, what is, so what is the final product? So let me put it in different language. Basically, heaven and earth coming together. That's, that's, you know, that's, 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 the, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. So, um, to infuse earth with heaven, right? Or to elevate earth up to heaven. You know, whether you're bringing the above down to the below or you're elevating the below up to the above, whatever it is, there's this fusion that's, that's going to take place. Body and soul. Right? Like, there's a lot of different ways to say it. There's a lot of different ways to say it. Um, but, but that's the destiny of the world. And by the way, you know, one of the... Um, and, and we've got different ways of describing that era of perfection. The sort of the contemporary shorthand for that era of perfection is Mashiach. Like, when people say Mashiach, that's what they're talking about. Okay? So... so um, one of the names of the era of, of, of peace, this next evolution of, of humanity, of, of, of the world itself that we're heading toward, one of the terms that they call it, the rabbis call it, is Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. Okay? And interestingly, you, you, you see this, the Balaturim points out that the very first word, remember that the, the Zohar says that the Torah itself is a blueprint of creation. So the very first word of the Torah, that's sort of your entryway into the world. It's going to tell you pretty much everything about the world, just right in the first word itself. So, so um, Yira Shabbos, the awe of Shabbos is if you rearrange the letters of Breshis, which you know is classically translated as in the beginning or out of beginnings, God created the world, right? So, so that. Sorry. So that's that's the letters Breshis out out of beginnings. In the beginning, God created the world. The, that's, that, those same letters spell awe of Shabbos, meaning to say Shabbos is the end result, right? The, the, because this era of peace, the Messianic period, is called the day that will be all Shabbos, right? So you see that the word Shabbos, this like amazement, this like, wow, like trembling before Shabbos, 
was, was, is, is the first word of the Torah itself. In other words, you see the end of creation right at the very beginning of the start of creation. Do you understand? So, so just to communicate that this was God's initial vision for the world. Okay? So, so, so the idea is that, that we're heading toward this place, but God has made us partners with him toward getting to this place. Do you understand? It's, 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 it's this dialectic, which is that on the one hand, everything is in the hands of God, and on the other hand, everything is in our hands. <laughs> right? Because God has put it in our hands in order to do his will. It's still in God's hands, but simultaneously and in God's infinite wisdom, he simultaneously put it in our hands. This is the incredible dynamic that's, that's life in this world. Right? Okay. So now I want to show you how you're going to see this in the building of the Mishkan. Okay? But I want to show you how you see this on an even more elemental level before we even get to the Mishkan. Okay? See, now, let, imagine... You see, imagine... Do you, do you know what the Hoover Dam looks like? Have you ever been to the Hoover Dam? It's this massive, massive repository of water. Like, like this mini ocean's worth of water. And then there are these gates, which just sort of like completely stop it up. So now imagine if you were to open up the gates. Like you're standing in front of those gates, <laughs> and those gates open up. Right? You know what would happen to you? You're obliterated. You're obliterated, basically. Now imagine I'm standing in front of the gates. I'm knocking on the gates, asking for a drink of water. <laughs> right? Like, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Those gates, oh, of course we want to give you some water. And then the gates open up and you're finished. Right? You can't, you can't exist in the midst of that overwhelming power. Okay. But... How can I get a drink of water from the Hoover Dam? Well, if it goes through all this system of of pipes, right? And the pipes step down, step down, step down, step down, till you can just turn on a faucet, and then I get the water. But it's got to go through this whole series of steps. Do you understand? Okay. So that's actually going to address a big theological problem. That, what we just described there, is going to address a very, very big question. The question is this. How can it be that the first mention of God's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke, doesn't appear in the Torah until after the seven days of creation are complete? And then, by the way, it's the very first verse that's mentioned. You have the seven days of creation where the divine name Elohim is mentioned, which stands for nature, right? God working through nature, shaping nature. And then as soon as the natural order is in place, then you have this most powerful, most exalted name of God immediately after that. So in other words, keeping with our imagery of wanting that cup of, cup of water, 
right? You see, if how can anything finite exist in the face of the infinite? <laughs> the yud Vavke is the ultimate infinite expression of godliness. It would obliterate anything finite before it. Do you understand? There could be no world before it. Unless you become a part of the finite. So God creates, God creates a natural order. He creates this world, right? And now there's this like pipe system, so to speak. And now once there's a natural order in effect, now you can receive the infinite because it's been filtered through this natural order through the finite. And now you can receive the name of God. So now we've answered a very big question. By the way, this is in accordance with the Ma'orinayim, okay? The water analogy is mine, but this is what he's saying, okay? Which is that, that, that once you have this world, basically, and this step-down system, now you can receive the infinite, okay? In, in a way that can be received. Okay. So, so this is now fits very nicely. Why does the Yudke Vavke only happen after the seven days of creation? Okay, now, now we've got a good answer. But let's hone in on that even further. Okay, and this is me talking right now. Let's look exactly in that verse where the Yudke Vavke appears. And it appears a couple of words after this, one of the great words of the whole Torah, this word, Behibaram. Behibaram is like there's, like, there's like books and books and books written over the centuries about this word, Behibaram. And, and, and basically, the, the Zohar says that if you rearrange the letters of Behibaram, it spells the word Ba'avraham. And in the context of the verse, what it would mean is that for the sake of Avraham, God says, I created the world. So, by the way, Avraham stands for Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, you should know, not just Avraham. And basically, it stands for every righteous person that's ever going to be created. So, for the sake of the righteous person, God created the world. But now let's go back to this idea of the faucet, right? What is the last gateway? The last, like we talked about this piping system, this plumbing system. Like, what is the last gate that exists before God, the infinity expression of God, enters in the world? Avraham, the righteous person. In other words, you, me, all of us are the last gate for the full realization of God to pass through to make it known in the world. We're that last step. Do you understand? This is an amazing idea. Now, now, the Kutzke Rebbe famously asks, where is God? So, so someone who's been maybe learning a little bit says, I know, I know, I know. God is everywhere. But the Kutzke Rebbe says a fantastically better answer than that. He says, God is where you make a place for him. You see, because God is everywhere and can be everywhere. But if you're speaking Lashon Hara and you're cheating at business and you're doing this, that, and the other thing, in a way, what difference does it make that God is everywhere? Because you are that last gate through which the revelation of God enters into the world. Do you understand? You see the primacy of a human being here. And now you see not only that, 
But you see really what this means in a very deep way, that um, God has made us partners with him in terms of finishing up the world. Because if we're that last gate for the revelation of godliness in this world, we're very much partners with him. It's like serious business, because you can see that if, that if human beings start doing the weird stuff and bad stuff, that it blocks the revelation of godliness in the world, even though God is absolutely everywhere. But that shows you the primacy of a human being. So, so this is very important. Now I want to tie this to the Mishkan. Okay? And I want to introduce it with two thoughts, two questions, okay? Um, the first is this idea, so, so we have to do work. We have to do work. And again, another one of these messages that I'm like very, I feel so, you know, from, from, from my depths that, that I have to get out there. I just want to publicize this thought as much as I possibly can in my lifetime, which is that here's what people think mistakenly. People think that the Garden of Eden was a cosmic spa and then we blew it, right? And that the only reason why we have to work, oh, it would have been great, we wouldn't have to do any work, it would have been fantastic. We ate from the tree of knowledge, and then God says to Adam, now you have to work by the sweat of your brow, which some people translate as the tears of your eyes. In other words, parnosa, livelihood, is going to be like a tremendous drag. And we wouldn't have had to work at all if we had just not eaten from the tree of knowledge. This is what 99% of people think. It's not right. It's incorrect. And you, all you have to do is look in the Torah itself and you'll see what I'm talking about. Before we eat from the tree of knowledge, it says that our job was, get ready for this word, to work and to guard the garden. This is before we get cursed with having to, you know, work for bread. Before that whole incident, it says, work and guard the garden. And then the, the rabbis explain how all 613 commandments were contained within those, 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 those instructions. So in other words, from the very outset, here's the point, from the very outset of creation, this was a work session. From the very outset of creation, we were created to do work. Very important. This is very important to understand, especially because all of society right now, see, we part of the fact that the world has become more developed and has become wealthier is that economically speaking, we've shifted toward what's called a service economy. What does a service economy mean? That means that they provide all these things so that you don't have to work. Before it was like, you know, you just had to work as hard as you can just to get, you know, a bowl of soup, right? But now it's sort of like, now I, I, if, I'm, if I'm, you know, making some cash, I don't have to do anything. And, and, and they want to sell you every bit of service so that you don't have to work. So that a person has been brainwashed into thinking that the sign of my successes, how do I know if I'm a success? if I'm doing no work whatsoever. <laughs> but that's not true. <laughs> so, 
So now let me get back to something that I was trying to tell you forever ago. I was talking with my son. We were driving together. He's 18 years old. And he's, we're going out for a coffee. And, you know, I don't like to push him too hard in terms of, you know, his, you know, what he needs to do, you know, ritually speaking. You know, I want it to come from him to the extent that, um, you know, that's a bit of a dangerous game. But, you know, you try to create an environment where they want to do it and things like that. But you also have to trust them. So anyway, whatever it is. So we're driving to get a cup of coffee, and, and he says to me, he surprised me. It was Friday. He says to me, you know, he goes, do you have this feeling that uh, Shabbos is coming, and that it's like a, a short day, and like you're not going to be able to have like a full day to do what you need to do because it's a short day? And then he says, you know, because he's already feeling, even though it was in the morning, he's already feeling Shabbos is coming. But he was feeling it as a negative, because it's cutting down on his free, on his ability to do what he wants to do, right? And then he says to me, knowing that I didn't grow up with Shabbos, he says to me in sort of a, a wistful way, he says, what was it like having, you know, your Fridays, basically, you know? And so, so we're driving now, and, and I said to him, you know, we're talking about it a little bit, and he's, I said to him, you know, probably in the back of your mind, you're probably thinking, in addition to what we were talking about, in the back of your mind, you're probably thinking you haven't put on tefillin yet, and that you need to put on tefillin, right? And he nodded, he said, yeah, that's true. And I said, you know, you know that feeling that you have and it's tied to this idea of Friday? Do you, can, I, can I put it in a different context for you? What you are feeling is that you have something that needs to be done in this world. In other words, you, you might be feeling it as sort of like a burden or as an obligation, but what you're really feeling, what your soul is feeling, is a sense of purpose. That's, that's what's going on right now. And I said, I said, do you know people who don't have any sense of purpose? Do you know what happens to them? People who don't have things to do that they need to do? They turn into drug addicts or every other addiction. I mean, I won't go through them all, but there is no shortage of addictions. And now we have more addictions than we've ever had before because it's in direct correlation with the degree of meaninglessness which is plaguing people's lives because the soul understands that it needs to do things in this world. The soul inherently understands without being told, I'm here to do something. And if you don't tell me what I need to do, I'll find things to do. But if I don't know what it is I'm supposed to do, I'm going to run after whatever my body tells me that it wants in the moment. So I'm going to fervently pursue meaninglessness in the hopes of finding meaning, but how can I get full if all meaning is air? I just get bloated and sick. So I told him, I said, that feeling that you have, this sort of like, sort of like, you know, like unsort of tethered sense of obligation or burden or whatever it is. No, you're, that's your soul telling you 
that there are things to do. And thank God you know what it is that you're supposed to do. This is fantastic. This is a salvation. Okay. So now I want to address this. You see, this idea of work, and I'm telling you why I'm focusing on this idea of work. In, in the Torah, the word is ayin mem lamed, amal, right? This is, this is the word. And, and you'll see why I'm telling you this later, because we're going to contrast it with a word once the, once the mishkan is complete. We're going to compare it to the word that's used there, and you'll see something like super cool, okay? So ayin mem lamed. By the way, the, um, the Magalia mukos, says that ayin mem lamed, which means work, that, that was the word that God uses for the work in the Garden of Eden, stands for, the ayin stands for I, meaning we have to guard our eyesight. The mem stands for mila, which stands for sexuality. And the lamed stands for um, our tongue, lushan, like lushan hara, like we have to guard our speech. So he sees in this word amal, sort of like an overview of some of the primary things that it is that we have to focus on in order to perfect ourselves. So, interestingly. Okay, anyway. Now let's get to the idea of the Mishkan. And I want to sort of like maybe approach it in a different way. You see, the Mishkan was dedicated on the first day of Nisan. It was finished on the first day of Nisan. That's very, very significant that it was on the first day of Nisan, because there's a debate in the Gomorrah, in Mesecta Rosh Hashanah, which is, when was the world created? Was it created in Tishrei, the month of Tishrei, or was it created in the month of Nisan? Okay, so there's two different views. And then Tosafos gets fancy, and he says, no, 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 really, it's both views at the same time. It was created in thought in Tishrei, and in action in Nisan. But you don't have to say that. I mean, if you want to be like Tosafos, you have to say that. But you could say, no, 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 it was one or the other. He's just coming, coming up with a, a fancy shita, which I'm sure is true. But, um, but anyway, the bottom line is, is that, you know, there's a very strong, there's a very strong, uh, you know, uh, support to say that the world was actually created in Nisan, in the month of Nisan, which makes sense, by the way. Because that's the springtime. Like, like God took us out in, in, in Nisan because it was the month that, that, that was springtime, you know? So, so anyway. So the Medrash says, so why am I making such a big deal about the fact that the Mishkan was, was, was completed on the first day of Nisan? Because that correlates with the creation of the world. And in fact, the rabbis teach that the Mishkan itself was a miniature, was a microcosm of a perfected world. Okay? Now, I think it was Rabbeinu Bechaya, but I saw this thought, where do you see that the Mishkan correlates with the world? Okay? So he says that there are three major divisions in the universe, and those three major divisions are reflected in the architecture of the Mishkan. So what are the three major divisions of the universe? So you have the highest, you have the spiritual realms, okay, that's number one. And then you have, like, what we would call outer space, where all the galaxies and planets and stars are. And then you have this quadrant that we dwell in, 
All right? This, this material sort of universe. So you see those three. And those three are reflected in terms of the layout of the Mishkan itself. The Holy of Holies, which was like beyond time and space, right? That correlates with the spiritual realms, right? You had angels on top of the ark and all sorts of things. The ark took up no space, right? That was a miracle. So you've got all these things that correlate with the spiritual realms. Then you have like the the stars and everything like that, the, the lights of the stars, the planets, that's where the menorah was and everything like this. And then you have where you brought actually the sacrifices, the offerings themselves. That's like, the, that's like you know, where you brought the animal itself, right? That's like the material universe, right? That's our nefesh behemoth, our animalistic soul. That's, that's this world. Okay. So, so who made the world? God made the world. But what about this miniature of the perfected world? Who made that? We made that. (laughs) And now, hopefully, you see this idea that I've been trying to tell you, that God is making us partners with him in terms of the completion of the world. In other words, God made the world. See, I, I once heard this phrase one time that I love, which is that the war is won. Now all we have to do is win the war. <laughs> but can I tell you something? It's true. The war is already won. Now what do we have to do? Win the war. Do you understand? And that comes through our actions. God made the world. But this realization of the perfected world, this microcosm of the world, which is the Mishkan, who made that? We made that. So, so, so now, what happens once we finish the world? Once we complete the Mishkan? It says, Hashem's cloud descended, right? So we talked about what is the perfection of the world? That's heaven coming down to earth, or earth going up to heaven. However you, this fusion that takes place. The last thing that happens, once everything is in place in its perfect order, you know, and it's very precise the way it's made. That's why mitzvahs are very precise. And you say, well, does it really matter? Do I have to do it that way? Or really, come on, you know, there's lots of wiggle room. But imagine I gave you my phone number. And I said, hey, really, is there a difference between fours and nines? Come on. Sevens and twos. All right. It's, I gave you my number. It's mostly right. Don't worry. Right? Or you're putting in like a, a web address in the computer. So I put dot .co. All right. They'll figure it out. I left off the M. It doesn't work. <laughs> now, this is not a, a formula for being, you know, I'm not saying, okay, so therefore be neurotic. <laughs> be highly neurotic. That's not what I'm saying. But understand that the precision of the mitzvahs is, is actually makes a a degree of sense. Do you understand? They, they should be precise. Everything else is precise. Why would that be less precise if that's the entire blueprint of creation? So, so, so all the measurements of the Mishkan like work exactly, and all of a sudden this divine cloud comes down. This heavenly cloud comes down. And now I want to... Remember I went through the... The, the work, the word work that we have to do in the Garden of Eden, right? Remember, Amal, it's 
Ayin Mem Lamed. So what does it say in the Torah? And it, it says, I'll give you um I'll give you the verse. Uh this is uh this is right at the end of Sefer Shmos, it's chapter forty, verse thirty-five. Moshe could not enter the tent of meeting, for the cloud rested upon it, and the glory of Hashem filled the Mishkan. Filled the Mishkan. And the word that's used there is malah. It means to fill. Now, let's kind of compare these two words. Amal, we have to work. And then when we, when we finish the world, right, the Mishkan, we build the Mishkan, and the sign that we've finished it is that God's presence is like revealed, is filling the whole thing. It's the word malo. Well, okay, so one is ayin mem lamed, that's work. And the other is mem lamed aleph. Well, okay. What do we what do we see by the comparison of those two things? Well, we've got we've got this word, letter ayin in the beginning, then we've got mem lamed, right? Um, and then in the other one we've got mem lamed, and then the the letter aleph is at the end. So basically, what happens is the ayin turns into an aleph. Now, if you know if you if you've learned Hasidus, you know that there's a whole literature in Torah of turning ions into olives. Why? Because they're on the opposite end of the spiritual spectrum. They're both silent, first of all. So they're kind of cool in that way. But they mean totally different things. Ion is the gematria of 70, which means the appearance of many powers. Because we say that there's 70 nations. So, and and. Ayin is also, it's not just the name of a letter, it's, it's the eye, the eye itself. In other words, to the eye, it appears that there are many, many powers. Okay? But Aleph is the gematria one, like God is one. Aleph is like where we want to get to. We want to go from the ayin to the Aleph. Do you understand? We want to see that really there's just, there's just God. Like everywhere you look, there's not a combination of powers. It's only the oneness of God. Now, the Jikava Rebbe gives like a beautiful example. By the way, when I was in, uh, when I was in uh, South Africa, I was like, you know, they had this like green room area and I was kind of preparing for uh, this talk and uh, Alex Clare, who's like just this, you know, super cool guy is like learning like next to me. He's also preparing something. And I didn't want to disturb him, and, you know, we're just kind of both working on our things. And uh, anyway, but while I'm going over these tours that I'm, like, getting ready to say, I, I couldn't not say this one to him. I said, listen, I got I to tell you this tour from the Jikova Rebbe. And he says to me, that's my relative. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Like, you know, you don't hear the Jikova Rebbe every day, much less meet a, you know, family member. That's... that's that's great. So anyway, so, so, so the Jigover talks about the word Akiva. Okay, now remember, it says in the Gomorrah that, Rabbi, that Moshe Rabbeinu said, why didn't you give the Torah to Rabbi Akiva? So if you want to know how high Rabbi Akiva is, like, like that's, you know, Torah Shabal Peh. He's Mr. Torah Shabal Peh's Rabbi Akiva. Akiva starts with the letter Ayin, 
and ends with the letter Aleph. And what about the three letters in between? They add up to 112. Okay, you have Kuf, Mem, and Beis. Uh, no, Kuf, 112. Kuf, Yud, and Beis. Okay, so w- what is the significance of 112? 112 is the gematria of Aleph, Dalit, Nun, and Yud, which is the name of Hashem in this realm, pronounced Adonai, Yudke Vavke and Ekia all added up together, adds up to 112, which means basically you're going through all the ten spheros. You're going from Malchus to Zer Anpin to Keter. That's like the, the, from the bottom all the way, spiritually speaking, to the top. That's 112, okay? So Rabbi Akiva is Ayan, right? That's 70. That's the lowest, the appearance of many powers. Filtered through 112 from this realm all the way up to Keter till you get to the Aleph. Okay, so there's another example of Ayans becoming Alephs. Okay, and there are many, many examples in the Torah. Okay, so now let's get back to ours. God made us partners with him in this world to do work. That's a mal. It starts with iron, right? We've got to slug through this appearance that there are other powers in the world, right? And then what does it become? The iron drops off, and the whole world fills with the revelation of God, and we have Malo, Mem Lamed, Aleph, right? All of a sudden, the, the iron turns into an Aleph, and we have this revelation of God. Now I'll tell you something else. This blew my mind, you know? So this came to me on Shabbos while I was dancing. All the best Torahs come to me while I'm dancing, you know, because um, the, the Maral, it's, it's, it's a Maral. The Maral says when you're dancing, your soul has ascendance over your body. So when I heard that, I thought when I'm dancing, that's the best time to learn. Because if your soul is above your body, then you're going to not get blocked by your body. So you can really learn good Torah then, you know. So, so here's an example. So imagine puzzle pieces. You're doing a jigsaw puzzle, okay? And there's a little puzzle piece missing, all right? And you have to put the right piece in there. The letter pay, the letter pay is like this. And you can't tell it by the way it's written in a uh, printed book. This is the way it appears in the Torah scroll. And this is in the Mishnah Brewer, by the way. If you want to have a, a halakhically correct um, uh, letter pay, there has to be the outline of the letter Bays in the white space in the middle of the peg. Okay, like a missing jigsaw puzzle piece. And next time you look in a Torah scroll, if you look in the middle of the letter Pei, you'll see there's the outline of the letter Bays. Okay? So when we're talking about the completion of, 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 of the Mishkan, which is the completion of our work in this world, what Parsha is that? That's Parsha's Pukude. Starts with the letter Pei. Right? So there's a missing base in there. And I want to say that that's the base of Breshis. <laughs> that's, cool. that's your puzzle piece. You understand? The base of Breshis fits into that hole in the middle of the Pei of Pukude. Because that's the completion of creation. That's everything coming together. And in the beginning of Pukude, it says, it says, Ele Pukude HaMishkan Mishkan. Mishkan Mishkan. Why are we saying Mishkan Mishkan both? Because we've got 
the temple below and the temple above. <laughs> and we're raising the temple below to the temple above. That's the vase being put into the middle of the pay of Pakude. Do you understand? And everything comes together. All right. Let's just review a couple of points. We'll finish up. How do you know if you're getting closer to God? If you're getting closer to people. Where is God? Not everywhere. That's, that's a rookie answer. Where do you make a place for him? Why are we in this world? Not that we should be so exalted that someone else fills up our, our glass of Diet Coke. And that's a sign of my greatness that I don't have to walk to the refrigerator. We're here to work. We're here to work. Okay? And then what is actually happening in this world? What is going on? We are partners with God in terms of finishing off creation. And God should bless us that we should see his full oneness and glory fill the entire world. Amen.